Good morning. It's Friday the 17th of November here in London. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Europe podcast. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Coming up today, Alphabet's CEO says China will be at the forefront of AI development. The UK Chancellor bets on a pension revamp to unlock investment billions. Plus, rates versus yields. We discuss if some traders have got ahead of themselves in believing it's job done on inflation. Let's start with a roundup of our top stories. Alphabet's CEO says he expects China to be at the cutting edge of artificial intelligence development. Speaking to Bloomberg, Sundar Pichai warned that the world's two biggest economies will have to work together on developing the technology. From what I can tell, they're making deep investments in AI. The scale of AI research talent in China is just simply astounding to see. So I think, you know, in some ways, this question... China is going to be at the forefront of AI, and, and you know, I think that's a given. Um, and so the question is, how do we work over time, both for you know, other countries to make sure you're making progress in AI, and over time, how do we develop the frameworks where you know, countries can coexist peacefully in a world in which AI will be you know, everywhere? Sundar Pichai's comments came after business titans including Apple's Tim Cook and BlackRock's Larry Fink attended a dinner with the Chinese president on the sidelines of the APEC summit in California. Xi Jinping is keen to attract more overseas investment and in a speech to business leaders promised to take more, quote, heartwarming steps to secure additional foreign capital. The largest US chip-making machinery firm is facing a criminal investigation after allegedly violating export restrictions. According to Reuters, Applied Materials is being probed by the Justice Department over dealings with China's biggest chip-maker, SMIC, SMIC. Our US semiconductor reporter Ian King says that scrutiny of the sector is growing. The key takeaway is that this is an increasing area of scrutiny. This is something that Washington is very focused on. We're hearing a lot of talk from politicians on both sides about whether these trade restrictions have been successful or not, whether China has effectively slipped by them, as we saw with the the Huawei report. So this is an increasing area of focus. So if you're a company that is part of this market and depends heavily on this market, then there's no doubt that your actions are going to be under greater scrutiny. Bloomberg's Ian King, who points out that there is a political debate over the success of trade restrictions. The report overshadowed generally upbeat quarterly results from Applied Materials, which topped analyst estimates with its earnings and forecast. Here in the UK, Chancellor Jeremy Hunt will lay out Britain's economic direction next week in the autumn statement as the Conservative Party faces a potential wipeout in next year's election. Bloomberg has learned that the Chancellor is planning a growth-boosting autumn statement with incentives to invest in the UK. Ewan Potts reports. MPs from the Chancellor's Conservative Party want him to loosen the purse strings in an effort to boost dismal poll ratings. But Britain's flatlining economy and persistent inflation mean that Jeremy Hunt has limited room for manoeuvre. Bloomberg has learned that, along with savings on welfare, the Chancellor is eyeing growth-boosting tax relief for smaller businesses and long-suggested cuts to inheritance tax. The city will be watching for an update on plans to finally revamp the pension sector to encourage more investment in the UK. The autumn statement comes on Wednesday. In London, I'm Ewan Potts, Bloomberg Radio. 
Now to the US. The Federal Reserve's Vice Chair for Supervision says that leveraged hedge fund trading in the Treasury market can be risky. Michael Barr has joined a number of US officials expressing concern about the strategy, which can play an important role in capital markets. Speaking at a New York Fed conference on the Treasury, he said that leverage must be managed appropriately. Leverage can also increase risks to both market participants and to Treasury market functioning and must be managed appropriately by both investors and their counterparties, including through collecting margin to manage counterparty risk. Staff at the Federal Reserve and other agencies have done important work to analyze leverage in the Treasury market using available data. These studies have found that hedge funds are significant investors in Treasury cash, derivatives, and repo markets, that their highly leveraged positions in Treasury markets are facilitated by very low or even zero haircuts on their repo financing. Michael Barr speaking there. His comments and remarks come after hedge funds and their trading strategies have come under fire during the Biden administration. The United States and the European Union are pushing for the UN to operate a peacekeeping force in Gaza after the war. Bloomberg has learned the discussions are at an early stage but could raise pressure on Israel as civilian casualties mount. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken says Israeli military can't stay in Gaza for the long term. We've been very clear that um, there can't be a reoccupation by Israel of Gaza just as Gaza can't continue to be used as a platform to launch terrorist attacks. Lincoln spokesperson out of the United States stood by Israel's evidence that Hamas were running operations inside some of Gaza's hospitals. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says a command centre was hidden under the Shifa hospital raided by troops earlier this week. And now a story about the business of sport. A sport-focused private equity group has taken a stake in Aston Martin's F1 team, valuing it at a billion pounds. Arctos Partners joins a number of investors betting on the sport as it grows in popularity in the US. Canadian billionaire Lawrence Stroll owns the team, but told Bloomberg that the sale's not about fundraising. Let me make it very clear. The team does not require money. We are profitable. And we currently spend to the budget cap. You know, Formula One, there's a certain budget cap limit and you can't spend beyond it. And we're spending to that budget cap and still being profitable. The reason for the minority sale of shares to Arctos, they're very unique in several ways. Um, One, they're U.S.-based, which was great interest for us with the growth potential in this marketplace. It is the first time that Stroll has sold shares in the F1 team, which his son Lance drives for. He is also the largest shareholder in the associated British luxury car maker Aston Martin Lagonda. OK, in a moment, we're going to look actually about at the markets and about how moves in the yield curve might affect what global central banks do next week. Our markets live strategist Mark Franfield will be joining us in just a moment. That's the big kind of bond market story of the week. <laughs> but then we've had another one that's caught our eye. I mean, who can resist a story about Taylor Swift? Well, apparently nobody can. And certainly not people writing research notes in banks. The mentions of Taylor Swift have gone through the roof. Now, like, is this sort of a, <laughs> a lame attempt to jump on a zeitgeist as well? But just to give you some examples, of titles of research notes from BTIG, How We Got Bad Blood from Goldman, All You Had to Do Was Stay. I mean, quoting liberally lyrics from Taylor Swift seems to be the new fashion, essentially, in investor notes. Steve Sosnick is Chief Strategist Interactive Brokers describing Taylor Swift, of course, as an economic force. He says, yeah. just ask Jay Powell and a true phenomenon. And he said he wonders if this what Beatlemania was like. I don't know if people were quoting the Beatles in research notes um, at the height of Maybe their Maybe not, but people either. were going well for it. Look, is it because of her business acumen, her billion dollars, the, the lyrics, yes, or is it some... <laughs> 
might also be the age of the strategists who are writing the notes. I don't know. That's just that's just my perspective. But no, it's it's interesting, isn't it? That um, she's become such a force. I mean, musicians are now business people and entrepreneurs. Yeah, well, I mean, Taylor Swift's been credited with boosting US GDP by about eight and a half billion dollars in the Oof. third quarter because of her tour. Uh, there's also some uh, pointing to the fact that, in fact, the slowdown in inflation in concert tickets, which contributing to the overall slowdown in inflation in the most recent numbers in the US, may also be because her tour ended. So that could actually be part of the uh, the continuing story of Taylornomics that's coming to uh I'm sure it's, any you can notes. study it in a textbook in your university pretty soon, I imagine. Right, uh, that's a bit of uh, yeah, Taylor mania. Let's also talk about uh, what traders are thinking about, though, shall we? Um, job done. One view, certainly, when traders are betting on the idea that central banks will be forced to cut interest rates next year. Now, Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai says he expects China to be at the forefront of AI and that it's important for the US to collaborate with China on both regulation and innovation. Pichai and executives from Microsoft, Citigroup, Tesla and other multinationals have been meeting with the Chinese President Xi Jinping and US President Joe Biden at the APEC summit in San Francisco. Now, Sundar Pichai has been speaking to Bloomberg's Emily Chang. He says the world's two biggest economies will need to work together on the development of artificial intelligence regulation. It's not going to be easy, but, uh, but I would start from this premise that AI will proliferate. So this is not the inherent nature of software. AI advances will get out to you know, all countries. And so it is naturally the kind of technology, I don't think there's any unilateral safety to be had. We all have a shared incentive to solve for safety. You know, you could have AI go wrong in one country, that will impact every other country. So in some ways, it's like climate change in the planet. We all share a planet. I think that's true for AI. So now that you know that that will be true, I think you have to start building the frameworks globally to make progress. I've seen encouraging progress. Uh, when the G7 happened in Hiroshima, I think it was a good start. You've seen more progress. The UK AI summit last week, the administration here, the White House has been uh, leading the way as well. And I saw good, encouraging announcements even yesterday for US and China to start having a dialogue on AI. Well, that was my next question. Should Chinese regulators be part of this conversation on AI regulation? My sense is there is no way you make progress over the long term uh, without you know, China and the US deeply talking to each other on something like AI. So I think that has got to be an integral part of how you make progress. So I think I'm glad to see it. And you know, we have to lay the foundations. The good thing is we are still in early days of the te technology. So laying the foundations now will allow us to work through the tough issues and build a common framework over time. How do you think AI, and obviously the US presidential election coming up as well, how do you think AI is gonna further test election integrity? I think you know, over time, it's going to lower the barrier for creating, you know, artificial information, which may or may not mirror what's happening in the real world, right? And that barrier will come down. Mm -hmm. So in this cat and mouse game, how do we amp up our defenses uh, against that? We are in early stages, right? You know, we were one of the first companies to announce a watermarking technology for image generation. It's called SynthID done by DeepMind, and we are providing API access to it. But 
all of us need to tackle it. These are areas where regulation will have to play a role, right? I think governments will have to, over time, pass regulations about what is okay for you know, some of this synthetic content, and, and so, which is why I think you have to think about it you know, together. OpenAI CEO Sam Altman has said repeatedly he wants to know more about what's happening with AI in China. What do you know and what do you not know about where China is on AI? From what I can tell, they're making deep investments in AI. The scale of AI research talent in China is just simply astounding to see. So I think you know, in some ways this question, China is going to be at the forefront of AI and, and you know, I think that's a given. Um, and so the question is, how do we work over time, both for you know, other countries to make sure you're making progress in AI, and over time, how do we develop the frameworks where you know, countries can coexist peacefully in a world in which AI will be you know, everywhere? You know, President Biden actually just said he doesn't see the US decoupling with China, but the world does seem to be on a path to two separate internets. Do we continue in that direction, and what does that mean? It's tough to say. Uh, you know, things go through in phases. Uh, I think we are definitely in a phase where there are more forces pulling it apart. Um, but you know, inherently, these technologies also facilitate easy exchange of information. So I think there are countervailing forces as well. So I think it's tough to predict. I do think information wants to flow freely by nature. So you know. My hope is over time, uh, you know, things do couple back again. Could AI or cloud, some of these newer businesses that Google has been building, could that be a path back into China for Google? You know, today, we, uh, you know, our presence in China is limited, uh, limited, and we are definitely focused on, we, we deeply partner with governments around the world. Uh, in fact, one of the big opportunities we have with cloud and AI is many governments are working and they are thinking about how to incorporate AI to transform their services to their citizens, improve their infrastructure, et cetera. So it's an area where we really focus on, but not necessarily vis-a-vis -vis China. Hmm. So that was Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Alphabet there, speaking to Bloomberg's Emily Chang. Um, talking uh, mm. about the need for global cooperation on, on AI safety and the importance of working together on climate change. You can hear the full 20-minute conversation on the Bloomberg Talks podcast where you'll find all of our key interviews in one place. Yeah, absolutely. He talks about AI sort of being a sim just a similar challenge to, to climate change and warming. Uh, yeah, totally interesting. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Invest 30 minutes Minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Right, let's also talk about the bond markets, though, today. Job done. 
That's one view that traders are betting on, the idea that central banks will be forced to cut interest rates next year. Inflation data from the US, UK and Eurozone all indicate inflationary pressures are easing. But that also means that the focus shifts from growing too fast to not growing fast enough, pushing yields across the Treasury curve lower. And here's the question. Powell and a number of other rate setters from the Bank of England to the BOJ have said that the sustained move in long-term Treasury yields has the same effect as a Fed-induced rate hike on the US and the global economy. So does that mean that the reverse is true? If yields keep falling, could that over time function as a rate cut? And where does that leave central bankers? Joining us now to discuss is our Markets Live strategist, Mark Cranfield. Great to have you on the programme, Mark. What are your thoughts then on that idea of whether yields falling means effectively a rate cut? It does to some extent. Uh, but it eases the burden, particularly in the corporate sector, because they are obviously big borrowers through their bond issuance in the medium term, five-year, 10-year, sometimes even longer-term bonds. So if the yields in that part of the curve have already fallen, that obviously gives them a bit of help in the sense that when they go to refinance, they're not having to pay um, such higher rates. Um, they won't think of it as being much of a rate cut when you consider that the Fed has already raised rates by 500 basis points from where they were just a couple of years ago. So it doesn't really get much more interesting for them until we're probably down at something like 3%. But the idea that rates have peaked in terms of where official rates are going is probably going to be a comfort to a lot of people, probably to consumers as well. Whether the, the rate cuts actually come through as quickly as the market is pricing, that's another question. But certainly, it's going to be very hard to reverse the psychology now that people really believe that we've seen the highest yields for this cycle. Well, let's dig into that question. Are markets being overly optimistic about the prospect for rate cuts coming in the coming months? They always overdo it, both on the way up and the way down. Mm -hmm. We saw several times uh, during this cycle where the market got way ahead of itself on the idea of pricing in interest rate increases, especially in the UK. If you remember, it wasn't so long ago, the market was pricing for UK rates way above 6%. Look where we are now. We're, we've gone completely the other way. 10-year uh, yields are approaching 4% in the UK. So we're bound to have markets pricing in way too much uh, on the downside. That's just the way things work. People get overexcited. They've got leverage to put to work and they, they price in, in too much both directions for higher and lower interest rates. We're, we're talking about something like 100 basis points worth of rate cuts in the US next year. Market will probably go to 150 basis points of rate cuts before the Fed even signal that they're changing direction. So yes, we can expect that markets will get overexcited and they will stay that way for quite a long time. It's immensely difficult then for central bankers uh, to sort of thread this. And we, we've seen it time and time again. As soon as they stop talking about hikes, then markets start thinking about pricing in cuts. I mean, has, has the Fed done a good job? Is it under pressure in terms of what it says? Um, their communication has improved. Um, I think they still... From time to time, I think the market can still see some gaps between the different Fed speakers. They're not all on the same page. And that's partly why the market is able to, to start pricing more quickly. So they could do with being a little bit more conformist and, and sticking with the same script. But in general, they've done, they've done a better job than some central banks. And I think you'll probably continue to get pushback from the Fed. They've still got one more meeting this year. They will probably insist 
that the table is still open for a potential rate hike. They will say that inflation is not beaten. The market won't believe them, but they will still insist that there is room for another hike if necessary. They will try and delay the process of actually changing interest rates for as long as possible. But it's going to be a hard battle because by now, investors are convinced that the data what we're seeing in CPI, the data we're seeing in some of the jobs numbers, even industrial production, is soft enough that the market is convinced that the Fed has to lower interest rates at some point next year. You, you say the Fed has done a good job in communication up until now. Are there central banks not quite meeting that standard? Uh, I think we've had, as, as from a trading point of view, I think if you ask the community, they would say that the Reserve Bank of Australia and the Bank of England are two of the central banks from time to time which have led them in a certain direction and then not delivered. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, your morning brief on the stories making news from London to Wall Street and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed every morning on Apple, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning on London DAB Radio, the Bloomberg Business app and Bloomberg.com. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day, right here on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.